it's over and done with for years. If you didn't watch it, go fuck yourself. <laughs> That's our approach on this show. We're covering old shows, but if you didn't watch it, go fuck yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to It's Not TV, it's a podcast. I'm Nicole and along with me is David. Hello, hello. This is the podcast where we celebrate HBO's prestige programming with subpar commentary. Each episode, we'll look into a show from HBO's past and tell you if it's worth your watch. What here yonder show are we digging into? We are talking... Deadwood. And this is uh, about the inability to get a boner? Yes. Uh, when you first go on antidepressants, <laughs> uh, what happens is – no. So we are talking about Deadwood. It is a Western uh, show from HBO. It premiered in 2004. It ran for three seasons and recently a movie. It is the 1870s in Deadwood. Uh, we're hanging out in this small prospecting town. Uh, it's in the Black Hills of the Dakota Territory on the eve of its admission to the United States, the good old U.S. of A. But it's not quite there yet, so it's lawless. Uh, gunslingers, cowboys, crooks, prostitutes, prospectors all find their way to this town that sits currently on quote-unquote Indian land. And while most of them are looking to make themselves a small fortune, uh, shit constantly goes sideways here in Deadwood. So our main character, yes, or one of them, is a sheriff or a retired sheriff. Yes. What makes a sheriff say, hmm, I've been defending the law all my life. Yeah. I'm going to go open a hardware store in a lawless town. Yeah. Yeah. Sheriff back then just meant that you were like the first bully in town. Mm. So you were like, yo, I need a badge. And they're like, sure, you, you can get a badge. And then like you could deputize all your friends. Uh, this is what Wyatt Earp famously did when he went on Wyatt Earp's wild ride, where he and his buddies <laughs> went and killed a whole bunch of people. And he deputized them all so that they couldn't be arrested. It is just always a mystery to me when you're just going to be Pandora's box for a stupid comment I make. All of a sudden, you just know all the things about it. Because <laughs> what they used to do. Let's talk about our experience with the show. So, Nicole, you have watched Deadwood before? I have seen exactly three episodes of this show because I okay. really wanted I've made you postpone this recording for many many yes. weeks because I wanted to binge the whole thing but after three episodes I just I didn't grab me mm. and so that's where I stopped what about you first a little bit behind the scenes for our audience while Nicole postponed this episode recording several weeks so that she could watch three episodes <laughs> I postponed the outsider for one week and both read a 500-page novel and watched a 10-episode series. Just pointing that out there. Do with that information what you will. Well, then I will drop my toddler off at your house and see <laughs> how much outsider you get to read then. Yeah, I, I think I have an unfair advantage by not having a toddler. But yeah, I watched Deadwood Live when it came out back in the day in the 2000s. I was a huge fan of it. I was excited about it. 
And then I was very upset um, after the three seasons. Um, and we'll talk a little bit about what happened. Uh, but I was very excited to get the movie back. And then I rewatched it with my wife when we got together. And spoiler alert, after watching the pilot for this, I'm going to do another deep dive and rewatch. So I'm going to go for round three on Deadwood. And that tells you a little bit about what I feel about the series. I think we've changed our tone a bit for our creator here as we have covered a, a previous show and did not like it quite as much. No, uh, David Milch made this show and we've talked about David Milch before, as you mentioned, he made NYPD Blue, Hill Street Blues on HBO. He did Deadwood, John from Cincinnati, Luck. And uh, we didn't like a lot of those. We really hated John from Cincinnati. And I don't think many people listened to that episode either. <laughs> no, no. Our John from Cincinnati episode did not do well. People hated that episode as much as we hated John from Cincinnati. But in this case, David Milch, hot off of NYPD Blue and Hill Street Blues and any show related to other blues, he wanted to make a show about how societies form around a symbol. So he wanted to talk about how Roman society became Christian and how they formed around the Christian cross. And he went and pitched this idea to HBO. And they're like, we're already making a show called Rome. Fuck off. Professional there at HBO. <laughs> High class people. But he said, fine, let's do gold as the symbol. And let's talk about a prospector town in the Wild West. And again, three seasons, 36 episodes. I got news for you, Nicole. I'm not alone here. Deadwood is often considered one of the greatest television shows of all time. And it's got eight Emmys. Rotten Tomatoes agrees in season one, quote, Deadwood's absorbing first season presents a vivid, unsanitized depiction of a frontier town that stakes its claim alongside other classic entries in the Western genre. Oh, sure. Season two, quote, amid the grit and lawlessness, season two of Deadwood offers a rich textural portrait of an Old West community buoyed by its talented ensemble cast. Oh, sure. Is that like a oh, my. boob joke? Yeah, there's a lot of boobs in this show and some peens. Yeah. Mm, yeah, I think I did see one. Yeah, they're rough, though. There's some rough peens. I think the first peen that's exposed is a gentleman pointing out that he's got a rash on his peen. Yep. Yes. And then the doctor comes and checks all the vaginas as well. Yes. I may also be mistaken, but I think Nick Offerman shows his peen on this series. I may be misremembering, but I think he's actually one of the gentlemen who shows his peen on this show. Oh, really? Yeah. This is what I was trying to figure out in my brains. So our producer is trying to verify the authenticity of Nick Offerman's penis in this show, but he did appear full frontal whether or not it was a prosthetic or not. Okay, well, I'm just I'm just really trying to put together like the character, you know, in Parks and Rec. Yeah. The special that he does where they do like good deeds and like now I'm <laughs> No, he's a, he's like a idiot prospector racist asshole western cowboy guy in the show and he's only in like two scenes if i remember correctly okay well season three rotten tomatoes quote deadwood's final season ends with a frustrating lack of closure yeah but that ambiguous final note doesn't detract from an outstanding series that ranks among the best the genre has to offer the best so here's what happened though nicole in deadwood every episode give or take is a day so if you watch 10 episodes, it's it's a week and a half, right? It's kind of how the show runs. But David Milch for the fourth season said, I don't want to do that format anymore. It doesn't quite work for the story I want to tell. So he asked to do two movies 
for the fourth season instead. And HBO and he went back and forth on this a couple of times. So then it was two movies, then it was one movie, then it was three episodes, four episodes. So they kept trying to figure this out. And then the cast moved on and they took down the sets. Mm. So it never got canceled. It just kind of fell into limbo until finally in 2019, 13 years later, it finally happened. Finally. Finally. Deadwood, the motherfucking movie. I think Timothy Oliphant kept his wardrobe, though, because he did like many other sheriff Western roles. Yes. That's just his everyday. So the weird story about that, Nicole, is he didn't go to wardrobe every day. He just showed up in what he wore normally. (laughs) And they were like, you know, take away, you know, the couple extra guns that he had. But 2019, it finally came together and they made Deadwood the movie. And guess what? Also highly rated. Are you are you putting it in my face that I only watched three episodes? Is that what this is? Yes. <laughs> this is what going to be me for the whole episode. Rotten Tomatoes said, quote, a triumphant coda to a beloved series. Deadwood, the movie, will satisfy fans longing for a little fucking closure. End quote. Ben Travers of IndieWire gave it an A- grade and called it bittersweet and brutally honest triumph. Fuck yeah. So one of the reasons that I think Deadwood was so beloved was the amazing cast they had. And there's a lot. It's a sprawling cast. As you mentioned, it's a big ensemble. But there are a few that kind of stand out, especially in the pilot. Let's start with Timothy Oliphant, who plays Seth Bullock. You're a big fan of Oliphant. Yeah, yeah, I enjoy his work. I actually have seen his... that. Santa Clarita Diet with Drew Barrymore. Yes. Which, honestly, I found very entertaining. One of his non-Westerns. Yeah, one of the few. Is he a cannibal in that? Is that what that one's about? No, Drew Barrymore is the cannibal. Well, she's technically... She portrays a cannibal. A dead person who eats people. Oh, so she's a zombie. Yeah, but she doesn't look like a zombie. Oh. Like, she doesn't look dead. Okay. But she is dead and eats people. Correct. Very much so. And that's good, though? i never seen it. I found it entertaining. I didn't say it was good. <laughs> Timothy Oliphant, often mistaken for her male model. I'm not saying that. <laughs> that is not. That is accurate. No. <laughs> when he guest starred on The Office, that's a bit that they do. So this is a shout out to his fans from The Office, okay. where one of the characters in The Office points out to another character, that's the salesman from the other company. And they say, no, <laughs> that's a male model. He's been in many films like The Crazies, Hitman, Perfect Getaway, Girl Next Door. Oh, he's the the older boyfriend guy. Oh, yeah, yeah. He's oh, an asshole. Oh, yeah. Um, he's kind of an asshole in a few of his things that's i mean technically he's kind of an asshole on this like yeah like he's the he's represents the good in a bad town for sure but also he's very mean to some people anyway he's most known for his tv work not only leading in deadwood and justified but also short and memorable runs in the mindy project the office as david just mentioned santa clarita diet curb your enthusiasm the Good Place and The Mandalorian. The Good Place? What was yeah. he in The Good Place? He plays himself in The Good Place. Uh, towards the end of the series, he shows up and plays himself as a gorgeous man. You believe that Joshua Dumal is the poor the man's, poor man's Timothy, Timothy Oliphant. Oliphant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because Joshua Dumal, I don't know that he has any Emmys. 
I don't know that he's been on a critically acclaimed <laughs> series multiple times. Um, so Timothy Oliphant, however, has. And for our Justified fans, he's actually coming back. That show won multiple Emmys and multiple awards and is now coming back as Justified Primeval City. So Timothy plays Seth Bullock in the show, former lawman. And as Nicole mentioned at the top of the show, he's the owner of a hardware tent. Um, he struggles not being in charge of everyone and everything. It's impossible for him not to be involved in everyone's business. Literally, the thrust of the first episode is him overhearing conversations, putting his hand on his gun and getting fucking involved. And in real life, Seth Bullock was a sheriff, the owner of a hardware store in Deadwood. He was also a U.S. Marshal. He was also good friends with President Theodore Roosevelt. Um, he had run-ins with Wyatt Earp. And he built Deadwood's first hotel, which still stands today and is totally haunted. Uh, not by him. He died of uh, colon cancer in uh, at the age of 70. So he died, uh, as Doc Holliday would have said, he died with his boots off, which is something that most cowboys didn't have the opportunity to do. In Night of the Museum, Robin Williams plays a Roosevelt. Is it this one? It is this one. Yeah, Theodore okay. Roosevelt, Teddy Roos. That's who I imagined the minute you said it. That's who the teddy bear is named after. Robin Williams can make anything a memory for me. To be clear, the teddy bear is named after Theodore Roosevelt, not Robin Williams. Well, I mean, he seems furry. I'm sure he's very teddy bear worthy. Uh, let's talk about Ian McShane. Uh, I think he might be the reason why I couldn't get into this show. But let's oh. talk about him. Ian McShane, the star of the long-running BBC series Lovejoy, won a Golden Globe for Best Actor in Deadwood, and was the star of American Gods. He also appears in many films, especially British crime dramas. But in Deadwood, he plays Al Swearingen, the owner of the Gem Saloon, a brothel in a bar in a casino, in many respects. Not, you know, what you'd find in Vegas. He's basically the Tony Soprano of 1876, a terrible mobster who controls the underbelly of the town. Yeah, so TV Guide named him number six in its 2013 list of nastiest villains of all time. Although you think he's too nasty. I just don't have patience. I'm not a big mobster guy. I wasn't a Godfather watcher. Okay. I, mm -mm, nope, I didn't watch Scarface. Uh, what is the one with the guy with the blue eyes? Mickey Blue Eyes? No, that's that's the singer. Um, I think that's a Hugh Grant movie. Where he plays a mobster. No. <laughs> I've never seen Hugh Grant play a mobster. <laughs> Someone fucking write that. Someone write that movie if I made he it up. He would be a terrible mobster. I think that the, is a movie with him. In the sense of bad. <laughs> Mickey Blue Eyes. Yes. It's a mobster movie with Hugh Grant. <laughs> no. So let me ask you this, though. You're a fan of Breaking Bad. What makes yes. Breaking Bad's sort of criminal different? then did you like that what makes that different than say deadwood or sopranos or godfather for you so it's funny that you should ask such a thing because i like terrible mobsters i guess or like regular people who kind of fall into it like i enjoy breaking bad i enjoyed weeds these are moms and dads who are trying in a realistic way trying to provide for their families so I, I, it just feels more relatable, I guess. You like to see that transition of them sort of to the point of breaking bad. Not necessarily I like to see them transition into drug lords. It's more, <laughs> it's more I can relate more to right. their transition than, you know, 
a veteran in the mob who was born into yeah. it or i don't even know do you does like their son take over for them is that how it works well in this case al swearingen the character that ian mcshane bases his role on al swearingen was the son of a, a prostitute and grew up in crime uh so he never really had a chance to be anything but and so this character al swearingen he ran the gem theater but he's a uh he's a pimp and he manages to rebuild the gem after a major fire took it he even had famous Calamity Jane, who was in this show, have recruit women for him, and then they were coerced into prostitution. I enjoyed her very much. Yeah, she's really good. And yeah, Al Swearingen left Deadwood historically. This isn't necessarily in the show. Historically, he left Deadwood after the second fire burned down his saloon. I guess you got to take the hint. And then many years later, he was found murdered under mysterious circumstances. And yeah, so again, really great villain, but kind of awful from the get-go you don't you don't get to learn his origin story so much to sympathize no. with him yeah i was gonna say does he get that arc does do you does he have a redemption at all in character what brings him to this so yes and no i think i think what's interesting throughout the course of the series is i don't think they fundamentally change who he is at his core but he does develop a sort of family around him sort of a, a TV family, right? It's it's not blood. But he develops relationships with some people in Deadwood who he then does work to defend and protect. I see. Al Swearingen, and you can learn this from the pilot, is a very vicious person to people who try to take advantage of him or try to take advantage of the town without sort of his, his okay. But as the series goes on, as outsiders try to influence his town, that is when Al Swearingen will work for you. So if you're someone trying to defend Deadwood from outsiders, whether that be the Native American tribes that they stole the land from, or whether that be from the good old USFA kind of infringing on their territory, Al has his moments to, to help others defend the town, but he is who he is. And the methodology that he uses, the methods that he uses to defend the town are kind of awful. Our two other big ones are um, Molly Parker, who plays Alma Garrett, Marley Parker was dominant in the 2000s in Canadian cinema, earning seven nominations and two wins in the Genie Awards, Canada's top cinema awards. She was critically acclaimed in Deadwood and was also recognized for her roles in House of Cards and Lost in Space. Alma Garrett, who is the character that Molly Parker plays, is a rich New Yorker who comes to Deadwood with her husband to strike it rich, and uh, they get entangled with Al Swearingen. And uh, while she isn't based on a specific historical figure, there's literally dozens of women who came to Deadwood and, you know, were widowed by their dumbass prospector husbands as they ran afoul of the locals. Uh, hint, hint, nudge, nudge. She's in danger. But not by Keith Carradine, who plays Wild Bill Hickok. So Keith gets around with his grizzly voice. Yeah. He's been in Nashville, Dexter, Fargo, and Madam Secretary. So... Wild Bill Hickok is portrayed pretty accurately in the show. He's got a big old mustache, a big hat. Uh, he's, he dresses a bit of a dandy, as they would say back then. In real life, Wild Bill was a Union Army scout during the Civil War. And then afterwards, he became a marksman, a lawman, a gunfighter, and a gambler. And he was kind of a what we would consider today like an influencer. He was a big star, a big celebrity, even though he had no right to be, right? He wasn't a politician or, or was in movies, but he was just, he got around. And uh, in real life, gang, spoiler alert, he didn't make it out of Deadwood. This was his last stop in his storied career. So like Wild Bill, are there other characters based on real life Wild West oh, peoples? 
yeah, there's a lot of them. Uh, and the show takes some liberties. But we've got the whore Trixie. We've got the hardware store owner, Saul Star. We've got the alcoholic Calamity Jane, the comedic Charlie Utter, Farnham, the hotel owner. It's it's a wild adventure. Farnham? That guy has some major troubles. E.B. Farnham is fantastic in this show. He's a, he's a bit of a mess. a circus maker. Yeah, so he owns the hotel and is kind of like the henchman for Al Swearingen. Al Swearingen kind of keeps sending him off to go do stuff. Even when he finds out he backstabs him, he still keeps him on the books. Yeah, that's a recurring theme. So what you guys will see in the pilot is that E.B. Farnham is a a unloyal henchman, which I think is a theme in henchmen. He's kind of like the Starscream to his Megatron, <laughs> where he does everything he wants, but if you can get something on the side, he does. But yeah, so in the pilot, which is called Deadwood, a bunch of interesting characters converge on Deadwood, which, as we mentioned, is a lawless town in the Black Hills. A gold rush is in full effect. and. We've got Timothy Oliphant's lawman, Seth Bullock, who puts away his badge and opens a hardware business here. Ian McShane is the saloon and brothel owner, Al Swearingen. He's trying to keep his prostitutes in line. And he's also making shady deals with some land claims. And healthy. Trying to keep them healthy. He does have the doctor come out and, and inspect them, uh, which is good. But that doctor's glasses are so dirty. I don't trust any <laughs> vagina so inspection gross. he performs. It's so gross. He doesn't wash his hands from one girl to the next. He's it's just getting awful. free time with the ladies. Yeah. He seems like he's angry about that, too. He's just, the doctor's great. He's always angry. It's the guy that plays Grimma Wormtongue. He yells a in lot. In Lord of the Rings, and he's great. So while Bill and friends show up, they're looking to, to play cards, and so there's this big fanfare around them. Uh, so the, you spend most of the pilot episodes setting up all of these characters and what they want to do here in Deadwood, and then some travelers leaving Deadwood get murdered. And so shit goes sideways and Wild Bill and Seth Bullock become best friends trying to figure out what went wrong. And of course, their, uh, their guns do the talking. So geographically speaking, you've got this town, like your Wild West town. It's one road, so to speak, dirt. Yes. Where is all this gold in conjunction to the thoroughfare? Yeah. So they, they mention it. Uh, it's, it's just outside the town. So it's where the Black Hills are. It's Lakota territory, if, I, if I'm not mistaken. And so here's, here's the issue for our fans as they're listening. At the time, this is Dakota territory, and it's Indian ground, that being Native American. This is how they refer to it in the show. I apologize if it comes off as offensive. They refer to it as Indian land. So this is Lakota territory. So by setting up and making deals with the Lakota, these people get access to gold in the Black Hills. And so they start buying it up and then selling it to other people. And the chain continues as this gold rush kicks off. The trick is now is when the show starts, the United States is considering turning this into an official territory slash state. The U.S. did different reasons for each, usually had to do with how many people in the Senate. But they're going to make it officially part of the United States. So part of what our characters have to deal with in Deadwood is if I get too friendly with the Native Americans then the United States may not recognize my land claims. Also, do I need to bribe people from the United States so that when they take over our land, they recognize the land that I bought from the Native Americans that then they're rebuying from the Native Americans? So it becomes this weird political territory. Jeez. Yeah, so it's, it's kind of wild. And, and Deadwood itself is pretty interesting in real life. The real Deadwood, South Dakota, a mining town that boomed during the Black Hills Gold Rush in 1870, and the land was disputed, even ending up in cases in the Supreme Court. Such famous figures as Charlie Utter, Wyatt Earp, Wild Bill Hickok, Madame Mustache, <laughs> Potato <laughs> Creek Johnny, Madame Dura de Fromme, and more called this town home. So earlier you said something about 
how they say Indian. So in the show, we're referring to how they're referring to it. Yeah. But there was something that they did modernize in the show. Yes. Fuck. Uh, So (laughs) David Milch has talked about this a lot since the show. He said that cowboys and, and people in Deadwood would have used very coarse language. Most of them were uneducated. They were on the fringes of society. But us saying things like, gosh darn it, to heck, Right, which would have been very offensive to a cowboy in 1876, doesn't really <laughs> hold the same effect in modern times. So what he said he did is he would write out the script and where he thought that they would use a curse, he used a modern curse. Mm-hmm. So the first the pilot actually has like 42 fucks in the pilot, which I think is a record. And yeah, so there's a lot of fucks, shits. One character can only say three words of English and one of those is cocksucker. So it, I think what it does is it helps you get a sense of that – they are sort of uneducated or angry or outside of the norm of society because of their curses. But that being said, the way they structure their sentences is very like old timey. They, they, and we talked about this a little bit when we talked about John from Cincinnati because we thought it didn't work there because that's a modern setting. But characters talk in very long sentences where you sometimes lose the track. Mm-hmm. For example, uh, rewatching it here. So now this is the third time at least that I've watched the pilot. There's a great scene where Wild Bill's playing cards, which you mentioned earlier he was playing cards in another scene. Every time you see Wild Bill, if he's not shooting somebody, he's playing cards. Uh, but Wild Bill, who's a famous gunslinger, is playing cards, and he's playing cards with a shithead named Jack McCall. And as he's playing, he thinks he won the hand because he beat Jack McCall's two eights. And then Jack McCall reveals that he has a third eight, that he had like, he didn't hide it, but he was just like keeping it aside, which means he had three eights and he wins the hand. And what Jack McCall said was, Sitting here thinking I'm fucking bluffing my third eight, I mistakenly outdraw the greatest gunfighter in the world. So before I finish the rest of that line, just to think about that for a second, he doesn't say, I was bluffing you. I thought I was bluffing and I wasn't. He says, sitting here thinking I'm fucking bluffing. So he's got this like weird cadence. But Mm -hmm. when he points out that he outdraws the greatest gunfighter in the world, Wild Bill asks for specificity and says, meaning the third eight. And Jack McCall says, what do you mean? And while Bill says, you said you outdrew me, you meant the third eight. And Jack McCall says, oh, like, of course. And while Bill says, no, 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 say it and then we'll play. What Wild Bill here is doing to poor Jack McCall is saying, don't go around town telling people you outdrew me because they're going to assume it means guns, that you outdrew me in a gunfight. You outdrew me in cards. Now say that and then we'll move on. But The reason I point this out is because of the cadence of the way they were doing this, I think it's great representation of the cadence of how they talked, right? Sitting here thinking I'm bluffing, Mm -hmm. right? Blah, blah, blah. But then I also missed the threat because Wild Bill, who is a great gunfighter, can't let anyone say that they outdrew him. Right. But I didn't pick this up the first two times I saw the episode because the cadence kind of throws me off. I knew he was pissed because he's talking angry, but I just thought, oh, he's angry (laughs) that this guy won the hand and is saying he outdrew him. I didn't make the connection to outdrawing a gunfight to outdrawing him in the hand. And it literally wasn't until a third time that I saw this episode. I was like, holy shit, that's great writing. (laughs) But it can take a little bit to get used to a little bit to pick up. Yeah, it's difficult. And I think that's where I struggled a bit. And it's one of my cons is that I some of those conversations, I have no idea what I'm listening to. Yeah, it, it can get tough. So back in Deadwood, there's no law. So murder was very common. Yeah, pew pew. And then in 1876, smallpox tore through the town. And in 1879, fire took up a good portion of the town as well. 
Yeah, the funny thing is, is smallpox, the, the smallpox outbreak is depicted in the show. The fire is not, but the fire, I think, chronologically happens right after that that third season where we had a big gap. Mm. So canonically, a lot of people say, oh, well, that's why we didn't have a fourth season of Deadwood because there was the fire. Which is why people didn't feel they had closure. Yeah. Yeah, we had to make up reasons why we didn't get more seasons. We had to fucking make it up. We were like, oh, there's no more Deadwood. It's because of the fire in 79. Everyone knows that. Deadwood managed to keep its Old West charm and lean into it. Seth Bullock's hotel still stands though it is haunted. Ooh. Kevin Costner opened a casino here after filming Dances with Wolves nearby. And the town even has daily reenactments of historical events for visiting guests. So historical, but not show reenactments. Not show, but the show does cover several historical gunfights. So kind of. That we don't want to give away. But mm -hmm. yeah, but they are part of it. The show has some big themes throughout its seasons. There's a rival brothel that opens. Uh, there's a murder mystery relating to a gold claim. Uh, there's a newspaper man who tries to modernize the town. <laughs> so it, it kind of follows this trend of the modernization, the modern world, right? The turn of the century America invading this old West space. Mm -hmm. I think what's really interesting about Deadwood is that it takes on what a lot of Westerns do, which is the end of the Western. A lot of them kind of place themselves at the end times when the transitioning is happening not kind of at the boom times some 20 or 30 years before. So what makes a Western? I, I think historically, when you look at Westerns, right, the, the reason Westerns were so popular for so long is when they were cheap, it was easy to make them. They were all outside. Uh, you mentioned the, the thoroughfare in Deadwood. It's a street. So it's easy to build up sets. And uh, throughout Hollywood and throughout uh, New Mexico and throughout Utah and all of those states over there, a lot of these these towns popped up, these ranches popped up and you could film there. A lot of them still exist today and are still used. But the 1930s through the 60s uh, was what's considered the the golden age of the Western. Uh, they were kind of the superhero movies of the day in terms of popularity. Like everyone would mm. talk about Westerns, but maybe they weren't respected as much as, as other films. But a lot of those were spinning out of actual cowboys who were still alive. So like Tom Nix is considered the first cowboy. So he was before John Wayne. He was before Clint Eastwood. He was before Timothy Oliphant. And, <laughs> and uh, that at the end of the movie Tombstone with Kurt Russell, they point out that Tom Nix, who was the first cowboy movie star, was at White Arp's funeral and wept. It's really interesting that we had this, this sort of overlap where these cowboys were writing their memoirs, biographies. The reason we all know about Wyatt Earp, for example, is because he wrote his own biography. There was this big rush on cowboy movies during that time frame. I think one of the more interesting stories is how they weren't really known for like character development. They just played the same guy over and over again. And like most famously, when we talk about TV, just to compare it, Deadwood was on for three seasons. Gunsmoke ran for 635 episodes and 20 years up until The Simpsons. I believe it was the longest running TV show of all time. Jeez Louise. Yeah. Are you caught up on all of that? I mean, can people claim spoilers are a problem for something <laughs> like that? I think for Gunsmoke, we're good. I think what's interesting, though, is this is sort of the classic Western that we're talking about now. But then it, it did like a change in, in the late 60s and 70s where spaghetti Westerns popped up. And that's not that's not derogatory towards Italians. Spaghetti Westerns were filmed in Italy and the mountains of Italy and and kind of represented what the Southwest Southwest looked like at the time in cowboy films. So it worked really well. And then it was even cheaper to film in Italy. But the original Westerns were sort of about lawmen defending towns and women, and you know, uh, defeating bandits. Spaghetti Westerns more focused on like antiheroes and lawless like gunslingers, people out for revenge. People like Al Swearingen would have been the lead. 
not Seth Bullock. Jesse James. Jesse James. These are the types of characters, yeah, that sort of became that. And because of that, spaghetti westerns tended to be way more violent than other westerns. So they kind of made this big transition. Uh, the most common one that people know of is that Sergio Leone did the Dollars trilogy with Clint Eastwood, with the good and the bad and the ugly. That's one of the most famous examples. Spaghetti Westerns kind of brought a, a revamp to the Westerns as they were kind of dying off, but it took a very different approach. I think what happens is, is you kind of lose the thread of Westerns. Um, it became like a parody on itself. So you still got some movies like Silverado and stuff like that that would still come out and try to reinvigorate, but they wouldn't be nearly as popular. Instead, you ended up with things like Three Amigos or Blazing Saddles or City Slickers that were like just making fun of Westerns. <laughs> yeah. And then there was this weird period where we had weird Western, which is sort of a comic book uh, genre more than a movie genre. But things like Cowboys vs. Aliens, Jonah Hex, Wild Wild West, where you try to introduce some sci-fi or fantasy elements. And I think traditionally they never work. I'm sure there are good stories out there in Weird West. Yeah, Star Wars. <laughs> so when you talk about Star Wars, yeah, I think the Mandalorian and Book of Boba Fett wear it on their sleeve. Like, I mean, there's literally gunfights at noon, mm -hmm. right? And uh, in in Boba Fett, I think you're spot on there. I mean, Timothy Oliphant plays a a gunslinger in a Mandalorian Boba Fett, a sheriff in Mandalorian Boba Fett, and has a he has a a gunfight with a character that's directly based on Angel Eyes from the Good and the Bad and the Ugly. Yeah, and I think other shows too, like Deadwood was one of the biggest and first to do this, but I think also when you look at something like Yellowstone. Yellowstone's a, a straight up Western. Mm -hmm. If you took the Ford F-150s and Dodge Rams <laughs> out of the show, if you like CGI'd them out, no one would notice the difference that this, they Just would not think that this took place. Yeah. Otherwise, there's no difference between 2022 and, you know, 1782 or when this would have taken place, 1882. And I think that's one of their spinoffs is 1882 it's kind or of funny 1883. that you say that because it's almost as if when you're on the land in Yellowstone, you're in the Western. And then yeah. it's kind of like this weird, you like leave it to go to the modern world. And yes. they're even dressed in such a way where you're like, what? Yeah, you <laughs> like, don't belong People are there. wearing like Manolo Blahniks and expensive <laughs> ass shit. And then you've got dirty cowboys walking by with a big badge that says, you know, not cow patrol, but oh my God. <laughs> cow patrol is even funnier. What are they called? Cow <laughs> Patrol no, is my next novel I'm writing. <laughs> what is it called? Oh, my God. If you look at the pilot for Yellowstone, and we're, we're not covering Yellowstone here, but the pilot for Yellowstone, if you watch the episode, it's like, here's a guy. His job is to train horses. Here's a guy. He was chasing cattle and chased them onto Indian land. Here's a guy who doesn't want to sell his land to people coming in and modernizing. Like, that's straight. It's a Western show. You you. You don't need to update it to the current times. Keeping people it, off of your land. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. And and again, it, I'm I'm not saying that Yellowstone is is stealing those concepts. It's doing them at a high caliber, but it's taking those similar concepts and executing them well. Um, what are what are some other modern westerns that that you are interested in or that you've seen? What are some of your favorites? So I'm gonna go the Quentin Tarantino uh, route. There's so many. Okay. I've seen many, actually. I was surprised when I looked at the list of Westerns, how many I have seen. In fact, I have had an ex-boyfriend tell me that I look like uh, the girl from True Grit. Oh, and that Haley <laughs> Stanfield? Yeah. So uh, well, specifically in that movie, I don't look like her all the time. <laughs> She's stunning. But anyway, I'm going to go the Quentin Tarantino route, Hateful Eight, 
Django. And based on what you just explained to me, I think Once Upon a Time in Hollywood might be a little bit of a Western. I haven't seen it, but it wouldn't surprise me. And Tarantino, I think one of the great things, and you actually, with Hateful Eight, he actually shot it on cameras that were used to film Westerns, right? And you saw it in that fancy format, did you not? So I went and saw Hateful Eight in the theater when they were touring the actual 70 millimeter film. Oh, Only yes. some theaters got it. In fact, he even brought back where you go to the film and they hand you the like pamphlet of these beautiful stills of the movie. And, and I guess that's something I didn't know this that they used to do when you went to go see a movie. It was a big deal. Yeah. And you got these like programs before you entered the theater so anyway, he brought that back for this, which I was made it a really cool experience. But those are certainly my favorite Westerns. Yeah, I think one of the things that Quentin does really well, uh, especially in these films, is is obviously he's he's very knowledgeable on film history. And so when when he looks at, you know, a thing like Westerns, he doesn't look at it and say, well, let me just modernize this. He looks at it and says, how do I get the feeling of those Westerns? And so like when you think of like uh, John Ford was famous for his vistas, right? You'd go to see a Western and you wanted to see it on the biggest screen possible because think about the timeline. We're in the 60s. You may have grown up in the East Coast. You may have never seen a mountain. And then you go to the cinema and you get to see these valleys and these forges and these mountains of these cowboys. And you would see it on the big screen. And a lot of times they would use these movies to advertise things like CinemaScope and those other things where they have these large film formats. Uh, mm. Today, you would consider them like super letterboxed because they're so wide. But this was to show off, look where we are and look what you can see. Yeah. And and Tarantino is the type of, of director and writer who doesn't look at that as an as a bygone. They look at that as inspiration and try to try to say, how can we get modern audiences to see it that way? Yeah. And I kind of regret not seeing Hateful Eight and 70 millimeter. Well, and also he doesn't see filming on film, actual yes. film as a bygone. He right. is one of, there's a few other directors that absolutely without a doubt will not make a movie without physical film yeah christopher Christopher nolan's Nolan's one of them wes anderson wes anderson yes that's another great example one of my faves yeah and his his style is so well suited to film that i don't know that he could shoot digitally and achieve what he achieves it's probably too crisp when this episode releases and then i'm going to remember the minute mark that was the first moment that we got to talk about Wes Anderson on our podcast. <laughs> this might outdo Bateman love for me. Oh, and we're going to find a way to get a Tom Hardy show on this podcast. So I can do this again. <laughs> yeah, I don't think he's done any HBO yet, but we'll get him. Yeah. I think those are good examples uh, for, for me, 310 to Yuma is one of my favorite recent ones with Christian Bale. The new one. The new one, yes. So that one guy from the kids' shows on that who like became this remarkable actor. And he was like he was like Shia LaBeouf in the sense that he was on some like Nickelodeon show. Was that Logan no. or something? No, I'm talking about Ben Foster. He was on a TV show when I was a kid, and he ended up being a remarkable actor. He plays Charlie Prince in 310 to Yuma, and he's fantastic. He's fantastic in every okay. second of it. He is the henchman. One of my favorite scenes that he does is when he offers 200 cash dollars to anyone that'll help him kill somebody. And it's just a great expression. What, what else could it have been if not cash dollars? But 200 cash dollars. 200 kisses on the cheek. <laughs> That'd be nice from Ben Foster. He's fantastic. I really in this. enjoyed 310 to Yuma. I really love Christian Bale as well. 
Yeah, so I really enjoyed 310, but my favorite Western of all time is Tombstone. Is that a movie? Tombstone's a movie. So it starred Kurt Russell as Wyatt Earp. George P. Casamatis directed it officially. Yeah, but Kurt Russell really directed it and kind of kept it a secret. It came out around the same time as Kevin Costner's Wyatt Earp, so the two movies got entangled. But Tombstone is fantastic. Doc Holliday is portrayed by Val Kilmer, and it's probably one of the greatest performances of all time. Let me give you a little taste, Nicole, of Val Kilmer in this as Doc Holliday. Wyatt Earp's about to get in a fight out in the thoroughfare in the streets. And so he's a little outgunned. And so Doc Holliday comes out, his best friend, and says, I got your back, Wyatt. And someone says, Doc Holliday, he's probably so drunk he's seeing double. So Doc Holliday reaches in and pulls out two guns and says, well, then I have two guns, sir. One for each of you. <laughs> Come on. Uh, Val Kilmer doing a Western accent is going to never be a good thing. I will say we almost kind of agree with our Westerns in a sense because Kurt Russell is in your favorite Western and Kurt Russell is in one of my favorite Westerns. Yes. And I would guarantee you Quentin put him in that because of Tombstone. It's it's so amazing. So some things I really liked about the show. I did like the show. I, guys, I have to like tell you, I liked the show. I wanted to love the show. I've continued to think about it. I truly think it was just bad timing for me that I couldn't get into it for one reason or another. But there's nothing that I can point out except for hating Al Swergen which is entirely designed that way for me to hate him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the actors are good. The characters are good. There are a few really compelling threads. There just weren't quite enough to pull me in. It's beautifully shot. It was very effective. I felt hot watching them drip in sweat <laughs> walking around in the West with all of those clothes doing hard labor. So I really, really can't say too many bad things about it. I really... There were a lot of pros for me. What about you? Yeah, acting's incredible. You're right. I think uh, everyone's really great in this, uh, especially with the cadence. I, I kind of think of the cadence. It, it doesn't sound like, but has this sort of Shakespearean vibe to it where you really got to sell the cadence. I don't you know. You really got to listen too. Yeah, and you got to listen. You got to. I recently watched Macbeth. And again, it's that same thing where first 15 minutes, I'm like, I have no fucking idea what's going on. And you start to get used to, oh, I got to, I got to pay attention. Mm-hmm. And so it's a little tricky, and I think this is one of those. But yeah, I, I think the, the dialect is really cool. It's got that rhythm. Uh, I think one of the other things I really liked about this is that there's payoff to things. Even though there was no fourth or fifth season and we had to wait you know, uh, over, over 10 years for the movie to wrap it up, you do get into conflict pretty often. And there's scenes where people sort of give you what you want and make it safer for you. So for example – you don't want two people necessarily to fight because you're afraid they'll kill each other and then you're out of a character. But in one scene, a particular character goes to fight another character and puts their gun on the table and says, like, let's go. So you know that they're sort of allowing us to get the relief of the tension because they're going to have a fist fight, not a gun fight. Mm -hmm. So we sort of we can scratch that itch without having to scratch a character off of our list. Right. But it still surprises you. So that that scene I just mentioned where they, they put down their gun, the question they ask next is, do you have a knife on you? And the other person says, well, I don't need a knife to take care of you. And you're like, oh, shit, throw down. And they do. And it's glorious. So it's like wrestling. This is why I didn't like it. 
<laughs> yeah, it's too much like a bunch of sweaty guys <laughs> threatening to fight each other. Uh, but yeah, I, I think that's one of the things I like most about it is I feel like they they give you enough checkboxes where, where you watch it. I also really like, and this is true of any show I watch, where if you open up with a wide cast of characters and then spend time spinning it up so they start working together for a common good or mm-hmm. common bad, as long as it's a goal. I enjoy that because I like seeing how that comes together. This was very true of Game of Thrones. Uh, Stephen King pointed this out that he said, no matter what you think of the final season, them just being able to get all of the characters into the same storyline is hard work for a storyteller. How do you get all these disparate threads together into a story? And I think Deadwood does that really well, where you would never look at the pilot and say, well, Al Swearingen and the sheriff are going to see eye to eye at some point. They do a really good job of giving you all these different threads sending them off in wildly different directions. And by the time you get to the end of the third season and in the movie, they bring them all back to a common storyline. I have to ask you a question. Yeah. After 13 years, when they, or however many years until they announced the movie, did you get excited? I was ecstatic. Okay. And our producer will tell you, I constantly would message him whenever there was word of it coming back. I... I had given up hope, but I think one of the great things about the streaming era, and this is true of HBO, this is true of of a lot of these services, is they have intel now on what you're watching. So they know that if they release something that's a continuation or a prequel, we talk about HBO, we just talked about, and just like that, which is a sequel to Sex and the City. Evidence of when it doesn't work. Yeah. (laughs) We talk about The Many Saints of Newark, which is a prequel to Sopranos. So I think one of the things that is really cool about the streaming era that we're in is because they have the statistics, they know the audience is there and are willing mm-hmm. to revisit things. Nosy Nellies. And yeah, so I was super excited. I, I would say, though, if you're a new person to watching Deadwood, I was able to jump right back into the movie when it came out without a hesitation. But as I mentioned, rewatching the pilot, I even caught lines I didn't catch in my views before. I would say that a con of this show is that it does take a bit to get used to that dialogue. I love it. I think it's incredible. But you struggled a little bit with the dialogue as well. Yeah. That was one of your cons. What what else kind of didn't hook you? Yeah, the dialogue and then the mob thing. It's just, I'm not a big, like, gangster. Gangster without a cause, you know? Power just because you want it. Power just because you have it. It's just not compelling for me. Power because you yeah. need it to support your family. Fine. I can get into that. Yeah, there's like this manifest destiny that these characters have in the pilot. And as someone who, who doesn't have children, maybe that's why I can connect a little bit easier because most of the characters aren't showing up to better their families. There are some other storylines that come a little bit later on, especially uh, with Seth Bullock and and uh, Timothy Oliphant's character, Seth Bullock. But for the most part, it's people trying to improve their own lives, mm. their individuality. Yep. There's like this rugged individualism that they all have. I'm going to go out to the West. I'm going to work hard. Uh, in the pilot, one of the characters – is talking to Al Swearingen, and he says that he's not owned by any motherfucker. And that's one of his pride. He has this pride that he's working a gold claim. He's doing it on his own. It's tough work, but he doesn't report to anybody. Right. I mean, when you have someone who's a sheriff, sure, he's flawed, and I don't know the whole story, but, you know, when they're saving a little girl, when they're doing the right thing, Okay, yeah, do the right thing. That's good. Yeah. But when you have someone doing the the bad thing, and I'm often a huge fan of the villain. Yeah, yeah. When they have a reason, when they are relatable, 
and mm. I just didn't. F- I'm not fine. Obviously, it's only three episodes, but usually you get a hint of humanity in there, and I just didn't really feel drawn or or attached to Al. I didn't feel impressed by him. I didn't feel like he was doing an excellent job where you're like, damn, Tuco. That's a Breaking Bad <laughs> reference. You know, you really got your shit together. Well, actually, Tuco wasn't great. But anyway, the point is, <laughs> when you're really good, you're like, oh, wow, okay. And in this case, I just don't feel like he's yeah. very good. I think he's very ruthless. I think he's very, yeah. he's ruthless and he will kill kill you. Yep. It takes a while before you see the cracks in Al and and start to see him as a human. So we talked a lot about Westerns. We listed out quite a few Westerns that we liked, Westerns to explain Westerns. (laughs) Are there any Westerns that are like Deadwood? None quite as gritty. I think your Hateful Eight um, is probably close. Probably your Django, too. They're not. They have more humor. And my Django, yep. Yeah, they have more humor. But I, I think this show is... If you like Sopranos, if you like Breaking Bad, again, we've talked about the nuances there. But if you like to watch the sort of fight for power and people kind of breaking bad people, getting into nefarious things, but you like more horsies and cowboy hats, this is for you. I would say it's kind of like Westworld, at least partially. But it's, you know, it's a theme park. So I guess not exactly. But it reminded me of it as I watched it. Yeah, and it wears its influences on its sleeve, I think, in in that sense. And it's the third watch of the pilot, so clearly, you think people should watch it? Yeah, so I'm going to watch the whole series again. I'm going to binge it again. Uh, I got so excited watching the pilot for this, and so this is my third third run through of the series. I would say skin that smoke wagon, jerk that pistol, get to work, (laughs) watch this show. This may be my favorite HBO show of all time. Top of the pop. It's fantastic, especially once you get used to the rhythm of writing. You'll love it so much. Uh, so thumbs up. A plus is from me. Nicole, are you going to keep going after your three? I'm, I mean, I don't know if I'll keep going. I'm I'm optimistic that I may. I did give it a really good try with the three. It just probably wasn't good timing. I really wanted to get into it. I really loved the one of the first scenes with Timothy Oliphant as a sheriff before he leaves his original town with a prisoner, it, I was like, oh, I love this show. And then we met Al Swearingen and I'm like, oh, no, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> but I would recommend it to other people with the same caveats that I give many people for other shows. It wasn't perfect for me and it wasn't perfect timing, but it was really well done. And I'm still thinking about it. So I'm optimistic. I'll definitely mm-hmm. watch it again. Any last wishes? Please help me with the fucking fall. And then he has to help him hang himself. Oh, so good. Nicole, thank you for talking Deadwood with me. I love Deadwood. Probably my favorite HBO show. I'm very excited that we got to cover it. And I appreciate you uh, talking some cowboys with me. Howdy, partner. Yeehaw. There's a snake in my boot. Let's let's talk some Toy Story next time. Let's talk Toy Story. Uh, next week, we welcome Stephen King's The Outsider onto the pod. Please check out our Twitter feed at It's Not TV Pod for further details about our podcast and to connect with our community. And please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. A very special thank you to our producer, Matt Malone. It's Not TV is a production of Bruit Media. Bruit Media.